Am I good? Let's take a moment. I'd like to lift up Jackie and our church family up in uh, family camp. Lord, I lift up Jackie here this morning as he teaches your word in the, maj- in the majesty of your mountains. Jesus, I lift up our church family that they would receive all your abundant blessings in their time of retreat. And for all of us here, that we live and breathe by your Holy Spirit and not by our flesh. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning. I'm pretty sure that uh, many of you may know me and some may not. And for the benefit of those that don't, I'm a grateful believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by his grace and mercy, I am able to stand before you victorious over drugs and alcohol. I am also his humble servant and ministry leader for Celebrate Recovery. My name's Howard. Hey, good morning, guys. See, now that makes me feel more comfortable. (laughs) When Jackie asked me to do a teaching for this Sunday morning, I about fell over for one, uh, as he was going to be up in family cap, I had an inclination to do a teaching on the serenity prayer. In light of Pastor Jackie's teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, most especially chapter 6, and from confirmation from Jackie, I prayerfully felt that it would be appropriate indeed. An effective prayer life empowers us for living a victorious Christian life. Prayer is the opening of our heart and soul in a conversation with God, thus an expression of our faith in a relationship with God. Jesus teaches us to pray, believing and having faith, telling us, All that you ask for in prayer, believe that you will receive it, and it shall be yours. Mark 11, 24. The Lord's Prayer, which Jackie so artfully broke down to us, is the model prayer for seeking God's will in our lives, the ultimate outline for all prayer, for communication with God to seek out His will for us, and petition our Heavenly Father for our needs. The Serenity Prayer is a simple little prayer that has locked away within its verses, keys to living a victorious Christian life. And that is the prayer I want to elaborate on this morning. In your bulletin, you'll find a copy of the Serenity Prayer, and up on our slide thing here. Would you pray that with me this morning? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, Enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this simple world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. The serenity prayer has an interesting beginning and ending, or background, I should say. Reinhold Nybar is considered to be one of the most profound Christian thinkers in the 20th century. He was a parish pastor who went on to teach for over 40 years at Union Seminary in New York. He was a renowned lecturer who authored scores of influential books and articles about theology, politics, and international relations. But today, Reinhold Nybar is remembered mostly for one sentence that he wrote back in 1932, almost at the beginning of his long career. That sentence was a prayer that closed the sermon Nybar delivered at a weekday morning chapel service at Union Seminary, the Serenity Prayer. 
The only people who heard that that day were the students and faculty members who happened to be at chapel that morning. But through a string of coincidences, that little prayer came to the attention of Bill Wilson, one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill was immediately impressed with how beautifully the prayer captured the philosophy of AA. I had never seen so much AA in so few words, Bill said. So the staff had the prayer printed up on wallet-sized cards as they included one in each piece of outgoing mail. Then it was reprinted by the National Council of Churches. The USO gave it out to soldiers during World War II. And and before long, Reinhold Nybar's serenity prayer had become one of the best-known and best-loved prayers in the world. God, grant me the serenity. How many times a day do we feel anything but serene? Kids screaming, car horns blaring, check stands way too long. My boss yelled at me, my wife is upset with me. And why does my husband do that all the time? And it's just way too hot out there. Oh God, if you could just give me serenity, serenity to get through my day without losing my temper, getting rude with those around me, brooding and wallowing in self-pity, hurting, angry, bitter, feeling guilty about all that ice cream I ate to cool off. But many times in almost the same breath that we are petitioning God for serenity, we are like the man who has fallen off a cliff and is hanging there by the spindly little branch sticking out of the side of it. He looks down, but he can't see the bottom. He looks up and finds no escape there either. He cries out, God, help me. Please, God, help me. God answers the man and says, let go. I'll catch you. The man looks down, looks back up, and yells pleadingly, is there anyone else up there that can help me? In times of trouble or need, we call out to the Lord for help. But often, at the same time, we are found looking around for a more tangible alternative. Our prayer begins with, God grant me the serenity. There's something crucial right here at the beginning in these first few words. God grant me. The serenity this prayer talks about is not something we can acquire by ourselves. We can't manufacture serenity. We can't buy it. We can't achieve it. According to the prayer, serenity is something God grants, something God gives away as a gift. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Isaiah 55, 1, 3. We start off praying our prayer by petitioning God for his free gift of serenity. The Bible's word for serenity is peace. In the Hebrew, it's shalom. It's, in the Bible, peace isn't, some, isn't simply the absence of war or conflict. Peace is a state of wholeness, completeness, fullness of life. Shalom is a foretaste of heaven experienced here on earth. Jesus often spoke about peace. After all, he was the Prince of Peace, is the Prince of Peace. And the most significant statement he made about peace is found in Joshua's gospel, in John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 27. At the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives, Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Jesus is making a clear distinction between two kinds of peace. There's the kind of peace that the world gives. We call that worldly peace. And then there's a peace that Jesus gives, spiritual peace. But what's the difference between the two? Another word for worldly peace is security. 
It's a sense that you've got all the bases covered. You've accounted for every eventuality. You've prepared for every calamity. Worldly peace comes when you finally get enough money or gain enough approval from other people. When you're finally secure in your job, your health, and your relationships. But as we can tell from that description, worldly peace is a very fragile thing because it's largely about having and getting. Having and getting enough to feel secure. But in this world, enough is never enough, is it? There's no such thing as absolute financial security. There's no relationship in our lives that can be, can't be lost in a heartbeat. There's no form of worldly peace that the world can't take away from us in an instant. And here's the critical difference between the two. Worldly peace depends on the circumstances around us. But spiritual peace is something that's inside us. Spiritual peace is an inner calmness, serenity, that doesn't rely on the, at the least on whether things are going well or if the kids are screaming, car horns are blaring louder than ever, the check stands just got a whole lot longer, the boss won't quit yelling at me, my wife just handed me my pillow and blanket and pointed to the couch, shalom. Peace is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of God. Peace is something you find when you give up trying to manufacture security for yourself. Start putting your trust in God instead. Peace is not the absence of, tr of trouble, but the presence of of God. Peace is letting go of the branch and letting God catch us, embracing his serenity, which is a peace that transcends all understanding. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.7. And I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. God, grant me the serenity. The real key to the serenity prayer is right here in the first three words. God, grant me. Like any good prayer, it's a plea for help. It's an admission that in and for everything, we are dependent upon a power greater than ourselves. When we say, God, grant me serenity, we are acknowledging that the serenity we are seeking is only available through a faith relationship with God. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The key word here is accept. God, grant me the serenity to accept. And for so many of us here, that's one of the hardest things to do. Accept the things we cannot change. I mean, as human beings, we really would like to have control over our lives, wouldn't we? Over all those people, places, things, issues, and circumstances in our lives. And we can get very frustrated when we don't have the control or the feeling of it, can't we? We cannot change the fact the kids are going to scream, the car horns will blare on loudly, the check stands will always be longer and slow, especially when I'm in a hurry. My boss will probably yell at me from time to time. After all, he is human, and I, I am too. And my wife will probably get upset at me once or twice. I definitely am not perfect. In fact, sometimes we get so frustrated over lack of control that we make Poor choices. We hurt ourselves or others. We abuse ourselves by overeating or undereating, by punishing our bodies with too much exercise or not enough. We use alcohol or drugs to deaden our feelings or try to create feelings. We try to manipulate others. We use threats, bargaining, abuse in a million different forms to try and control our own lives and the lives around us. We cannot change other people, their issues or circumstances surrounding them. We do not have the ultimate power 
to change the way people, places, and things are. They are what they are. I really doubt that in my own power and strength, I can make all the bars and buell disappear because I no longer drink. We may think we can change another person if we just try hard enough. We may believe that we can find just the right words or use the right amount of coercion. We can make others do what we want them to. Oh, for all the right reasons, of course. Sometimes we might even resort to shaming someone to make them change. This I have seen happen far too often, especially with children, and that saddens me deeply. But the truth is, we can't make another person do anything against his will or her will. We can talk and talk in hope of persuading the person to do things our way. We may try to coerce the person by using force or perhaps employ some form of emotional blackmail, or we might attempt to show the person how foolish he or she is by not following our beliefs and doing what we want. God gave us free will, and the only time people truly change anything is when they make the decision to change. We have to want to change in order to make lasting change. As human beings, with God-given free will, we always have choices. We need to guard ourselves against a commonly made mistake that we believe we can make someone else change. If we really look closely at the dynamics involved in this type of interaction, we will see we have no power over anyone at all who does not choose to give us that power. So we ask God to give us a serenity, to give us his peace, to accept those things we cannot change so that we can leave it to him to work it out. The Apostle Paul realized this and wrote in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that all things, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We ask for his purpose, not ours. After all, the best thing we can do when it's raining it's let it rain and let God take the darkness of all those rainy days and watch as he uses them to make rainbows grow crops make the grass green flowers bloom can you think of any people places things in your life today that you are trying to change trying to control if so ask yourself why do I think I really have the power to affect change or have control over anyone or anything God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and turn them over to you and give me the courage to change the things I can. The next line in our prayer. So where do we find the courage, the strength to change the things we can? Again, it is from God. We are asking in his prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can. David knew where courage came from and gave us the answer in Psalms 29, 11. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. We looked at all the things we do not have control of or the power to change. So just what are the things that with God's strength we do have the control to change in our life? There are really only three of them. We can change our attitude. We can change our acceptance. And we can change our actions. When we change our attitude, we change our acceptance. We can change our acceptance, we can, oh boy, let me try that over. There are really only three of them. Okay, when we have ultimately accepted what we cannot change, it frees us up to concentrate on what we can change. When we change our attitude, we change our mind, the way we think about others. When we change 
our acceptance, we change our heart, the way we feel about others. It's not easy to take this kind of responsibility for ourselves, and that is why this part of the serenity prayer calls for courage. It doesn't require courage to do the easy things in life. It takes courage to be willing to change ourselves, courage to overcome our fears, fears of change. Permit me to give some clarification as to what courage is and what it's not. Courage is not the same thing as fearlessness. Courage is not the absence of fear. There are some people who are daredevils who literally have no fear. They'll ski off a 100-foot cliff. They'll try and jump their motorcycles across a canyon. Nothing scares them. They're fearless, all right, but for all the wrong reasons. Most daredevils lack fear because, one, they're operating on an overblown and utterly misplaced confidence in their own abilities, or two, they're totally ignorant and unrealistic about the real dangers they're facing, or three, for some reason they've lost all reverence for their own lives and their fearlessness is just an act of suicide. The fearlessness of a daredevil usually has nothing at all to do with courage. On the other hand, on the other end of the scale, the fact that someone is afraid doesn't make mean they lack courage. In fact, where there isn't any fear, there can't be any courage, because courage is born out of fear. As General George Patton once said, courage is simply fear holding on five minutes longer. We need to be crystal clear about this. We will find true peace and serenity by running from, we will never find true peace and serenity by running from our fears. That's how people try to gain worldly peace, false peace, by trying to push their fear away, stuffing it down deep, or trying to cover it over with something else. But that will never work. The journey to true serenity is a journey through fear, not around it. Real courage means hanging in there despite our fear, despite the fear that runs through our stomach like an electric current, despite the fear that turns our knees to rubber. The only way to conquer our fear is by facing whatever it is that we would like to avoid, by following ourselves, by allowing ourselves to feel the fear, and by hanging in there in the face of that fear for five minutes longer. That's courage, that clammy, sweaty palm, terrifying business of facing our fears. That's courage. God grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can. That is a very powerful statement and prayer request in itself, not to mention a very good principle to live our lives by. So let's pray for the courage to change what we can about ourselves. Focus on changing the consequences of our actions by the spirit of courage given to us by God. If we truly want to accept the things we cannot change, we must first be willing to give up the control of it. Even if you don't have a drinking problem or a drug use problem, there are many things in our lives, marriages, and relationships that we would like to change. And we spend countless hours, we spend great amounts of energy trying to control and change other people, people and circumstances to fit our own expectations. We must acknowledge that our Lord Jesus has, the greater power, has a power greater than ourselves and place our faith in his promise for us, and then we will be given the courage to change ourselves. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover the sight for the blind and set the oppressed 
free. Luke 4.18. So let's ask God to give us the courage to change the things we can and accept people for who they are. The courage to change ourselves in his power, by his Holy Spirit, so that we can work at changing the outcomes of circumstances that we initiate or have initiated. Now the trick is, how do we know the difference between these things we cannot change and the things we can? By asking for the wisdom to know the difference. Wisdom is not an easy concept to define. A disciple once asked his teacher, Teacher, what is the difference between knowledge and wisdom? And the teacher answered, When you have knowledge, you use a torch to show the way. When you have wisdom, you become the torch. Wisdom is more than knowledge. It's more than common sense. It's more than the ability to problem solve. Knowledge has to do with facts. Wisdom has to do with the way we apply our knowledge, the way we use those facts. Wisdom is less concerned with what we know and more concerned with what we do with what we know. Wisdom has to do with how we live. It's about, our, about acting with intention. Now that we have the concept of what wisdom is, just where does wisdom come from? Do we think that wisdom is something we gain through years or something we learn by just reading scripture? I thought age should speak. Advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty, that gives them understanding. That was Job 32, 7 and 8. Now the question is, how do we get God's wisdom? We can read about wisdom, study about wisdom. Hey, it's even for sale. You too can have the wisdom of Solomon in this beautiful, limited edition, leather-bound set of four books for only four payments of $19.99 plus tax and shipping. Void, we're prohibited by law. That's what the world bombards us with on a daily basis. Buy this. It makes you, be, makes you better, stronger, more beautiful. But God says his wisdom is free, and it is a gift given to all free of charge. All we have to do is ask and put our faith and trust in him. Apostle James Chapter 1, verse 5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. God says wisdom comes from the Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ gives us wisdom and understanding to know the difference between what we can change and what we cannot change. God gives us his wisdom to know the difference, so we know the answer when we ask questions like, Can I change my alcoholic spouse and control their drinking habits? Can I make my adult child be a doctor instead of an accountant? Can I make my friends do what I want? Oh, sure, we can try to control and change people in this way, but what's the use? It causes contention, strife, and bitterness between us. That is not of God. These are the things we cannot change. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul's letter to the Romans, 8.28. God wants us to learn to acknowledge the things we cannot change, to have his wisdom in these matters so we can be free to love without control. For instance, we cannot make our alcoholic spouse stop drinking, but we can change how we react to the alcoholic when they are drinking. We don't have to enable him any longer. We can have the courage to change our behavior towards them. We cannot make our friends do what we want, because we would be selfish and wrong. But we can ask God for the courage to change our feelings about the things we do with our friends. We cannot make our children's decisions for them, but we can train them up in the way they should go 
and trust God with them. God says in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And I am pretty sure he was encompassing in all that you do, too. Most people familiar with the serenity prayer only hear it, read or see it as a slogan up to this point, most times. God grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And that's a real pity because the answer to the prayer, the answer to living a victorious Christian life is found in the last part of the prayer, which begins living one day at a time, enjoying one moment of a time, at a time. The key here is being worry-free, living in today, enjoying all the great things God has given us today. Jesus tells us, so don't be anxious about tomorrow. God will take care of your tomorrow too, living one day at a time. Matthew 6, 34. We can think of it this way in these trying times of a dying economy. Yesterday is a canceled check. Tomorrow is a promissory note. But today is cash, ready for spending in living. We allow our, when we allow our failures of the past or our fears of the future to rob us from the presence of today, we lose our serenity. It's only in the presence of today that true change can occur. What is the presence of today? Well, for me, it is a day the Lord has made special just for me. It's a 24-hour period of time never lived before, never to be repeated. I may never live to see another day or one like this one. I, never, I may never be closer to a decision I need to make, a step I need to take, a sin I need to forsake, or a choice I need to make. So I do so today. No one here this morning can go back and change one thing or one bad action in their past. I really wish I could. I did some pretty rotten things in my past that I'm not proud of and pretty ashamed of. And I would go back and change them if I could, but I can't. I have many lost moments and wasted time. In my addiction, as well as my naive younger years, I just knew I was going to live forever. Life and the people around me were always going to be there. I figured I always had one more day, another week, another month to get things done, put things right, or I'll fix that tomorrow. Mom and Dad will be there tomorrow. I will spend quality time with them next weekend. I will always have tomorrow to play with my dog, to tell my wife, I love her. Truth is, there are not that many tomorrows. And the real truth is, there is no more tomorrows. Is no tomorrow. There is only today. I can never change one past event in my life. None of us can. So we don't want to allow ourselves to stay stuck in our past failures. If we do, we will never find the serenity we desire today. Also, if we are always worrying and dreading about the future, we can't find the serenity of today. All our worrying today never robs tomorrow of its sorrow. It only steals today of its strength. Truth, most of the things we worry about in the future never happen. And even if they do, we really can't do anything about them anyway. What does affect tomorrow are the choices I make today. There's an old saying, and as old sayings go, has not lost its wisdom in the present. Leave tomorrow's trouble for tomorrow's strength. Jesus tells us not to worry, and we all know that worrying is sin, right? Missing the mark. Telling God that he's not able, that he can't, 
or won't live up to his promises. Face it, that's just like a slap in the face. Jesus is telling us he's got our back. Press into me. I got you. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not reap or sow or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who, by, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field that which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will not much more will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But first sake, his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has its trouble of its own. Matthew 6, 25 through 24. Instead of living in the world, always striving for what we don't have and worrying about a future we can't know, Jesus says, live in the present. Do you know this morning what living in the present really means? It's living in the presence, living in the presence of God. And that's exactly what the serenity prayer says too. It says if we want to find courage and wisdom and serenity, we need to live in the present, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time. The next line of the prayer is a tough one, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. That's quite a statement. How in the world can hardship, trials, and tough times be a pathway to peace? The answer is that in the world, they can't. But with God, hardships can be a pathway to peace. Our common sense tells us that if we could only solve all our problems, eliminate all our hardships, remove the causes of stress in our life, that then we could find peace and serenity. We tend to believe that the reason for our anxieties lies in circumstances over which we have little or no control and that by gaining more control and solving all our problems, we could then have serenity. That's why we struggle so hard to gain control over difficult people and impossible situations to finally find some measure of peace and serenity. Maybe the Lord allows some of us to experience hardships because that's the only time we ever think of him. Maybe it's the only way he can get our attention. The Apostle Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter chapter 5, 10. And after you suffer for a short time, God who gives all peace will make everything right. He will make you strong and support you and keep you from falling. He calls you to share in his glory in Christ, a glory that will continue forever, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Do you know that acceptance of what happens is the first step to overcoming consequences of any misfortune? That many of, that, this may come to a shock to many of you, but it is not always true that God wants to teach us something new in our trials. In every cloud and every hardship that comes into our life, God also wants us to unlearn something. He wants us to unlearn our old ways of thinking and acting. 
God's purpose in the cloud and the hardship is to simplify our belief until our relationship to him is that of a child. God uses every cloud, every trial, which comes in our physical life, in our moral and spiritual life, in our circumstances, to bring us nearer to him. So we do not allow our hearts to be troubled. James 1 and 2, My brothers and sisters, when you have many kinds of troubles, you should be full of joy because you know that these troubles test your faith, and this will give you patience. Let your patience show itself perfectly in what you do. Then you will be perfect and complete and will have everything you need. By accepting hardship, we are beginning to look at it in the terms of God's will, not our own. Whenever something bad happens, our first instinct is to receive it in the terms of how much we would like it to go away. And this is measured by the level of anxiety and stress we are feeling. It's not the thing in itself that makes us feel anxious and depressed, but how we are choosing to react to it. The more resistance, the more anxious we feel. When Jesus began praying in Gethsemane, he was overwhelmed by anxiety. So much so that he was sweating great drops of blood. Though the Son of God, he was also a man like any other man. He did not want to suffer and die. Jesus wasn't a masochist, and he wasn't suicidal. He wanted to go on living and was struggling in prayer with God's will, searching to see if there was another way for us to be saved rather than to be crucified. He prayed and struggled three times, and yet each time we finished his prayer with, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus ultimately faced crucifixion with the peace and serenity because he embraced God's will rather than his own. We need to embrace God's will in all things, especially our hardships, laying down our own will. Next prayer goes on, taking as Jesus did this simple world as it is, not as I would have it. Wisdom of Proverbs, chapter 15 and 3, 3 and 11 tells us, The Lord sees everything. He watches both evil and good people. The Lord knows what is happening in the world of the dead, and he surely knows the thoughts of the living. It has been said that the world is a hospital, and each of us are but terminal patients in it. And I also lose my place. We are all going to spend a relatively short time here, and maybe... 70 to 90 years, or even 100 at best. We have heard Pastor Jackie say on numerous occasions that our lives here on earth is like taking a string and stretching it from one end of this room to the other and then finding a single knot on it. That would be the time we spend here in comparison to eternity. Really, that's an insignificant amount of time when you really think of it or look at it in that light. But while we are here, we're not to turn away from the world Christ directs us to the world. In Matthew's Gospel 5, 13, Jesus tells us, You are the world's seasoning to make it tolerable. If you lose your flavor, what will happen to the world? And you will yourselves will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the world's light, a city on a hill, glowing in the night for all to see. Don't hide your light. Let it shine for all. Let your good deeds allow you... Let, let your good deeds glow for all to see so that they will praise your heavenly Father. Taking as Jesus did this simple world 
as it is, not as I would have it. We are not of this world, but we're to be in this world. Apostle Paul exhorts us, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing, perfect will. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Ever looked around and noticed someone wearing your sin? How horrible our sins look when, we're, when they're being committed by someone else. Somehow they didn't seem so bad when I was committing them. Here are a couple of questions for us to ponder, and if you're a note-taker, maybe go back and reflect on them in your quiet time. How am I trying to change the world? With whose power am I trying to affect this change? Am I trying to base my serenity on the world or the word? And we've come to the last part of this great prayer, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will. The Wisdom of Proverbs, chapter 16, 3, tells us, Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. How can we ask God to make all things right if we're not totally surrendered to his perfect plan, his will for us? We need to remember that we cannot train ourselves to be Christians. We cannot discipline ourselves to be saints. We cannot bend ourselves to the will of God. We have to be broken to the will of God. We have to surrender. In my recovery, I came to the realization that the really difficult thing is not to be more disciplined, but to be more, or to be more determined, or more active, forceful, or strong. The real difficulty is simply to surrender. The real, di- really difficult thing is to give up my notion that I'm in control of my life and to surrender my my control to God. I heard a story about an elderly man who was brought into a psychiatric center. He was wild, swinging at everything in sight. The aides eventually figured out that the old man was clutching a coin in his fist. And he was fighting so hard because he thought everyone was trying to take his coin away from him. He apparently believed that if he ever lost the coin, he'd lose himself. I suspect that a lot of us are like that old man when it comes to God. We come to God with our fists tightly clenched, as if we were holding on, hanging on to our last coin, convinced that God wants to take it away from us. We may not even like what we're clutching. It may be painful or shameful, self-destructive, and we know that. But at least it's familiar, and somehow it feels safer to cling to that climbing coin than to open our hand and give it up. We clutch a little coin with our fist as if it was a treasure we could never part with, as if losing it would mean losing our very selves. And what we hang on to, it hangs on to us. But Jesus said, whoever loses his life for me shall find it. Whoever opens his hand and lets go of what he's clinging to, that's a person who will find a real treasure straight from God. How about you this morning? Have you put everything in your life in God's hands? Or are you still clutching your life with a clenched fist? Here's a little assessment test we can take. When we pray, do we mostly ask God for the things we've already decided we need? Do we lay out our plans we've already made and then ask God to support them? 
Come on, God, give me that promotion. I've been waiting for it. Come on, God, do you know I need that car? Come on, God, do this for me. Do that for me. If that's the way we pray, then we haven't put everything in God's hands yet. We're still holding tight. We're still trying to get God to do our will instead of surrendering to God's will. Even bl- ever blame God when things go wrong, didn't go right according to our plans? How can we think that we have any right to blame God for something that happens to us when we have never asked for his blessing, his timing, or his guidance? I've seen people blame God for a failed marriage and asked, did you ask God for his will when you jumped into marriage? I've seen people blame God for their finances and asked, did you seek his timing, his guidance, his will before you plunged into major debt? Uh, Gee, well, no, I just thought God was going to have my back on this one. Most of the time, what we think is good for us is not always the case. Let us not lean into our own understanding comes to mind, wisdom from Proverbs. I have seen people blame God for an illness. Did they seek his will before they began smoking two packs a day or working out without taking a Sabbath rest, trying every fad diet on the Internet, every remedy in the form of a capsule instead of going before the Creator? Wouldn't that be kind of like taking your car to the dentist? We say we must do all we can. Jesus says we must let God do all he can trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will. Waking up and saying, God, whatever you've got going on today, I'd like to be part of it. And our prayer ends with, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Happiness is not having what you want, but wanting what you have. Someone once asked me how they could find happiness. Best way I know to be reasonably happy is to try to keep my heart free from hate, my mind free from worry, live simply, expect little, give back much, and most importantly, keep my life centered on Jesus Christ, who promises me, I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give isn't fragile like the peace the world gives, so don't be troubled or afraid. John 14:27. That's the serenity we are praying for when we pray this little prayer. Peace of mind and heart. And the peace that Jesus Christ gives us isn't fragile like the peace the world gives. We ought to remember that this is earth, not heaven. Our life here on earth is a dress rehearsal, not the real deal. We ought not to forget or lose sight that our real homeland is in the heavens where we will be spending eternity with our Heavenly Father, His Son, our Savior. We have small troubles for a while now, but they are helping us gain eternal glory that is much greater than the troubles. We set our eyes on not what we see, but on what we cannot see. What we see will only last a short time. What we cannot see will last forever, 2 Corinthians 4. God is looking for you and I to put our focus on him, and in our times of trouble know that it is the path that leads straight to him. Have you let go of the branch yet? Have you unclenched your fist? Paul, writing to Corinthians, says, Don't worry, be happy. That is what's meant by the scriptures, which says that no mere man has ever seen, heard, or even imagined what wonderful things God has ready for those who love the Lord. 1 Corinthians 2.9 And that's supreme happy happiness, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. 
That's a serenity prayer, a prayer that is much, much more than something that's prayed at the closing of any recovery meeting. It's a power prayer that's easily memorized and can be recalled at any time in our busy schedules. It's a very useful prayer at those stressful times that we encounter throughout the day. So I encourage you, keep the serenity prayer insert with you as you go through your week. Read it. Pray it in those times when you are feeling a bit stressed out, a bit overwhelmed, or just not as perky as you ought to be. Tape it to your bathroom mirror or on the fridge as you start your day. Pray this little prayer asking God to give you his wisdom, his insights for today. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will. Because you know what? He does it for me every morning when I take the time to ask and I take the time to listen. God, grant me your serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, your wisdom, not mine. So as we close this morning, I'd like you to stand with me and pray the serenity prayer. As we pray, I hope it has a new and deeper meaning for you and that you will always find God's serenity in your life. And for my brothers and sisters in recovery, keep the faith. Be strong in your recovery. Celebrate your recovery. And don't quit before the miracle happens. God, grant the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking this world, the world as it is, not as I would have it, so I think that you will make all things right if I surrender my, your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen.